Borderline crazy. Does that describe the Trump administration policy on the southwest border, or is this something we've seen before? My name is Richard Miles. Welcome to another episode of 35 West, the podcast about the 35 countries of the Western Hemisphere. My guest today is Alan Burson, who served as acting commissioner of the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol under President Obama and previously as U.S. Attorney for Southern District of California. Welcome to the show, Alan. Um, Alan, you grew up and went to college uh, on the East Coast. Uh, and then, so what, you know, tell us a little bit about your, your background uh, and what did you do uh, at a law school? Did you go straight into the lawyering business or did you do something else for a while? I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York and educated in New England. And after uh, law school, I went out to California where I stayed for 40 years before uh, coming to live here in Washington. Uh, after law school, I joined a uh, what was then a new law firm in Los Angeles, Munger, Tolls & Olson, and remained there as a uh, corporate uh, trial law attorney for 18 years. In 1992, I was uh, taking a sabbatical at the University of San Diego Law School, having moved uh, down there with, with my wife and our then uh, young daughter. As a visiting professor of law, I was then uh, appointed by President uh, Clinton as the United States Attorney for the Southern District of California in San Diego and the Imperial County. It was uh, interesting because I did not know anything about the border and San Diego being 15 miles from the uh, Tijuana and the Mexican border was a uh, new world. And what I didn't realize then, but has become so clear since, is that uh, in many ways with a group of other people like Janet Reno and Doris Meisner and a host of Border Patrol agents and federal prosecutors, we were present at the creation because in 1992, 1993, the border genuinely was out of control. And People were crossing only in the San Diego region. Basically, there was nothing to stop them. There were only 3,000 Border Patrol agents in the whole country. And at any one time on the Tijuana-San Diego border, there were perhaps 50 agents on duty. And each night, hundreds of people would gather to cross the Tijuana River, which was a dry bed, and then work their way through the city into uh, Los Angeles. Uh, that's where people crossed, there and in El Paso. And in 1994, after the campaign of Governor Wilson, the reelection campaign that led to Proposition 187, uh, the Clinton administration, uh, responding to the pressures of uh, anti-immigration forces, uh, began the process that has continued really since that time to uh, uh, restore the rule of law, as it were, to the southwest border, uh, starting in El Paso and San Diego, and then now uh, over the last uh, a generation through the administrations of President Clinton, President Bush, President Obama, and to some extent uh, President Trump, we have seen a complete transformation of the southwest border. Uh, almost $18 billion a year have been uh, invested in the uh, security and the conditions of the southwest border, uh, such that I've always considered it the greatest uh, bipartisan uh, domestic achievement in terms of security 
that we've seen in, in uh, since World War II. So quite a quite a uh, long and illustrious career in uh, the legal field and education. Also, as you say, the borders are, um, and you you started out by talking about how much things have changed. And I want to explore the numbers a little bit and sort of get your thoughts and what you think might be changing them. And, and specifically, you know, if you if you look at the CBP data on just apprehensions going back to two thousand. What you see is this really large drop. Uh, you had over 1.6 million apprehensions on the southwest border in 2000, and in 2017, just a little over 300,000. Um, so that's you know big trend in my view. Number one. The other thing that we've seen, rel- you know, more recently is that um, a, a lot of the apprehensions, if not the majority, are now Central Americans um, that are being apprehended. And then the other thing, to a lesser extent, but uh, wondering if you can comment on this, is sort of the the where they're coming across seems to have shifted as we have uh, changed our tactics and defenses, et cetera. So just wanted to sort of let's start out and talk about what do you think are the main drivers in a pretty massive drop, you know, over 80 percent in apprehensions on the southwest border? In 2000, you're correct. We saw 1.6 million and we've seen almost an 80 percent uh, decline. That's uh, attributable to uh, two major factors. One is uh, the investment that I referred to that was made uh, by both Republican and Democratic administrations to build up the Border Patrol. So that uh, 1992, there were 3,000 Border Patrol agents. Today, there are uh, just under 22,000, 18,000 of of whom are actually on the southwest border. So you saw a... uh, a building up of the border patrol, but you also saw a increasing sophistication. So together with the investment in human capital, it's been a massive investment in uh, technology, uh, in uh, the logistics of uh, operating uh, and managing a border. Uh, it's night and day different from the way it was in, uh, in the early 1990s. Also, the ability to actually track and identify biometrically the people who are crossing the border has revolutionized the way in which we we manage the southwest border. So first, it's the border security dimension. The second is the dramatic transformation in Mexico that's taken place in the last uh, generation, largely attributable, I think, to the North American Free Trade uh, Agreement of uh, negotiated by President uh, George H.W. Bush and implemented by President Clinton and uh, President Salinas uh, in uh, in Mexico. Mexico has gone from uh, a country uh, that was uh, undemocratic, uh, impoverished in the sense of the inequality that existed within the society and still to some extent exists, uh, but also uh, was a, a society that... Uh, did not uh, have the kind of economic policies that uh, NAFTA encouraged uh, Mexican uh, government officials to implement. So we've now gone from uh, a Mexico in which the United States was trading $80 billion a year in in 1993 to a uh, trade relationship with the United States that exceeds $650 billion. That's that's uh, uh, an extraordinary uh, increase. Mexico has gone f- from being a, a undeveloped country to being the 13th largest economy in the uh, world today. And the OECD in Paris predicts that within one generation, by 2050, Mexico will have a larger economy than Germany. 
So this has been a, an enormous uh, change in, in, in Mexican economic prospects that's been reflected as well in the social uh, nature of the, uh, of the country. Uh, 40 to 45 percent of uh, Mexicans today, unlike the situation a generation ago, are solidly middle class. Uh, and this is by any metric, uh, uh, years of education, uh, fertility rates, death rates, uh, housing uh, capacity, education uh, attainments. Uh, it's a, a, a hugely different society. Three times as many Mexicans are going to college today as was the case 10 years ago. The third is that Mexico has been transformed into a democracy, uh, a rough one, but we're a rough democracy. Uh, uh, democratic politics is a contact sport, but it is a robust uh, uh, democracy that is reflected in a whole variety of uh, by a whole variety of indicators. So you've seen a the number of uh, of uh, migrants that Mexico is sending to the United States plummet by uh, more than eighty percent, because in fact uh, for six decades at the end of the 20th century and into the first decade of the 21st century, Mexico was a sending country. Uh, the factors of poverty, uh, lack of opportunity, uh, violence to some extent, and the desire for family reunification with people who were already in the United States pushed uh, Mexicans uh, out of their country, uh, particularly the southern states and the central states of Mexico, into the United States, and the pull factors here were dramatic. The growing economy, uh, the need for labor, so that we, uh, we, we saw this uh, phenomenal uh, uh, migration that uh, matches uh, any uh, that uh, I think we've seen in history over a long period of time. The growth in the Mexican economy, the maturation of Mexican society has completely reversed that, as you indicated. We now have a net outflow of Mexicans and that's uh, from been true the United since States. about 2007, 2008, well, roughly. I think it was first identified by the Pew Foundation uh, in 20, uh, actually a little later than that. I think their research report that documented this uh, uh, came out uh, in 2010, 2011. But the fact of the matter is, this is a game changing dimension. Uh, at the same time, we've seen the uh, factors of uh, poverty same factors that drove Mexicans north are now driving Central Americans north out of the Northern Triangle countries of Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. But we should never uh, ignore the fact that, in fact, the numbers are dramatically lower than they uh, have ever been in terms of the southwest border. Now, if you're immigration policy and border security policy is a zero-tolerance one, if uh, the illegal entry of even one person is unacceptable, then in fact you've set a goal that is uh, not realistic and leads to the kinds of uh, problems that I think we've seen today. Right. Uh, although uh, I'm, uh, I think many of the issues that uh, the Trump administration is solving, albeit in a awkward and uh, sometimes odious fashion, uh, were actually established by omissions uh, during the Obama administration and the Bush administration and the Clinton administration. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, we're, we're recording this uh, just a few days after the Trump administration essentially reversed itself on uh, zero tolerance. 
or at least with respect to, to separating families. Walk us through or walk our listeners through exactly what changed with regard to how we treat um, unaccompanied children and families that show up, uh, well, not just show up, but cross the border illegally. What changed uh, that brought about this outcry and, and the reversal? So the major uh, phenomenon uh, that set the stage for today's events actually occurred in 2014 during the Obama administration when unaccompanied minors started to come uh, across, largely uh, driven by uh, undocumented parents here in the United States financing their journey under the uh, care or lack of care of smugglers from the Northern Triangle countries. The idea was quite frankly, uh, I've been working in this country for a long time and I cannot uh, uh, bear being without my, uh, my son or daughter, which is perfectly understandable from, this, from the perspective of uh, any parent uh, uh, looking at that, uh, that uh, lack of contact with, with your children. Uh, the smuggling uh, dimension of it uh, capitalized on what was a Bush administration humanitarian gesture with regard to the Wilberforce uh, Act that provided that if children cross alone, uh, they cannot be held in DHS custody, in Border Patrol custody or ICE custody, but rather within a specified period had to be turned over to Health and Human Services that would arrange for the uh, children to be uh, placed in the care of adults, uh, often family members, often undocumented fam family members already resident in the United States. And the, the idea was obviously the correct one, the best interests of the child. The problem is that uh, the numbers went from a relative uh, handful to thousands as it, the word uh, got out in the sending countries that this was a method that would work. You could actually have your child uh, smuggled uh, to the border and not at that juncture try to avoid the Border Patrol, but actually surrender to the Border Patrol because the Border Patrol's obligation was to take the child and after a certain amount of processing, uh, place them into the custody of Health and Human Services. Uh, the the there's, a, there's a, a, a problem. You can see the, the problem when the numbers get to the point where they cannot be managed properly. And the Border Patrol in 2014, 2015 was actually uh, in that situation where uh, they were overwhelmed and lacking facilities and lacking the capacity to deal with, uh, with the problem led to uh, a uh, very... Uh, uh, the first crisis, I think, that we 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 saw along these lines, uh, leading up to where we are today. And were these mostly Central American countries in 2014? Uh, virtually or all, all of them. Virtually, okay. Virtually all of them, because in fact, Mexican uh, unaccompanied youth had been dealt with according to the Reno versus Flores settlement that had been decided during the period of uh, the Clinton administration, and there was a regular mechanism for getting uh, Mexican. Uh, 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 unaccompanied minors uh, dealt with uh, effectively and uh, humanely. But you could see the, uh, the uh, tension building up, and the Obama administration reacted uh, quite, uh, uh, I think, effectively to uh, dealing with this surge of unaccompanied minors in, in uh, two ways. 
One is that uh, there was uh, an expansion of facilities to care for uh, for the uh, children, but there was also a uh, concerted effort to stop the flow, to deal with the surge, and that was largely accomplished uh, by cooperation with Mexico. So Mexico, as it has grown into a transit country, not a sending country with regard to migrants, uh, for the first time uh, began to actually control its southern border with Guatemala, where the large majority of, of uh, unaccompanied minors were being brought north. Mexico started uh, its programs, and in the last three years, for example, uh, apprehended uh, 200,000 migrants a year on the southern border, on the southern border and returned, in, returned those migrants to their uh, to the sending countries. And the crisis abated. What uh, has happened, and again, we have to recognize the role that uh, the smuggling network plays in this and also the instantaneous communications. You think about migration in the past, there was never the kind of immediate reporting back to the sending country what's of what's going on at the border. Uh, once uh, the word gets out that, in fact, you can get to the border and get into the country, uh, we see the, uh, the floodgates start to open. And frankly, the problem here has been the uh, broken nature of the asylum processing in the United States. Everybody in the United States agrees that the immigration system is broken. We can't seem to agree on how it might be fixed, but there is no part of it that is more broken than the asylum system. So what started to happen in 2015, 16, 17 was that, and it abated for a while because of the rhetoric, the harsh rhetoric of President Trump right after his inauguration, but you're seeing uh, as time went on, the word got out again that the same mechanism to get into the country uh, worked, which was basically uh, coming to the border, not avoiding the Border Patrol, but surrendering to the Border Patrol, but then to avoid expedited removal, which was a way of removing uh, irregular migrants without a immigration court process. Uh, by claiming asylum, you could actually stop the uh, the process of uh, deportation or removal. Now, I want to be clear that there are huge numbers of claims that merit humanitarian attention. There are also huge numbers of claims that really reflect economic, uh, something that brought my grandparents to this country 110 years ago, the notion that you could get a better life and improve your economic prospects. I'm not prepared. Nobody's in a position to say what proportion uh, of the uh, of the claims are legitimate or not. The majority, I suspect, are not legitimate and reflect the factors of moving out of a unpleasant and dangerous situation often. Uh, but the question is whether or not and in terms that of, should be an asylum yeah, claim. Right. In terms of not legitimate, what you're referring to is the definition under U.S. law in which it's fairly specific criteria for, for claiming asylum, a persecution for what political, religious belief? Well, no, actually that had changed too. Uh, Attorney General Sessions has just changed the criteria. But so let, let's address that for a moment. In, in 2014-15, the uh, traditional uh, uh, 
formula, so to speak, or the standard for judging an asylum claim before this change was actually the international refugee standard. After all, asylees are those who claim uh, persecution once they're in the country or at the border. Refugees who are processed abroad uh, are making this essentially the same claim. And for traditionally, it depended on claims of national, religious, ethnic, uh, uh, or political persecution, and that the claim of being persecuted by a government authority was the basis for seeking uh, either refugee status uh, or asylum status. That standard was changed uh, uh, by decision of the Board of Immigration Appeals in which, uh, for, the, for the first time, domestic violence and gang violence was accepted as a basis for uh, seeking and obtaining asylum in the United States. Uh, that has just been reversed uh, uh, in the past uh, two weeks by uh, an opinion of Attorney General Sessions that uh, has argued that, uh, no, that is not sufficient, and returning asylum processing back to uh, to the traditional standard. So that was the first, uh, the standard during the Obama administration was lowered. Mm -hmm. uh, the number of people who could qualify increased dramatically. Uh, but there was another problem. The immigration system could not in timely fashion adjudicate the numbers of claims. And one of the great bipartisan failures pointed to border security as being a bipartisan accomplishment. But one of the great bipartisan failures of the last generation was that the immigration system uh, was not equipped and had no capability of dealing with the number of cases that were placed before it. So that in this country, we now have 330-odd immigration judges compared to more than 2,000 uh, federal judges and we have a backlog in the system of more than 700,000 cases. So that what was happening was that people would come to the border, surrender to a border patrol agent, be turned over to uh, a, either a citizenship and immigration service uh, uh, adjudication officer or uh, a, another uh, DHS officer, and would be uh, asked a series of questions in what was what is called a credible fear determination. And the credible fear standard is relatively low and was by design in the legislation. So the people would then, for the most part, 80% or more, would qualify as having met the credible fear standard, which permits you to continue through the asylum process. The problem was that the immigration court could not process these claims because of the backlog, so that people were being paroled into the country, and awaiting their hearing or given a notice to appear that was often two, three, and four years downstream. In effect, then, getting into the country and being able to live and establish the various equities that, that accrue from living a daily life. And uh, that was the status uh, in, uh, of the uh, situation when the Trump administration came in and reversed engines uh, dramatically uh, the way they have. And and so um, was there also a shift in – previously we talked about unaccompanied children showing up at the border. Was there a shift now 
to entire families showing up, knowing they basically could use the same mechanisms of requesting asylum. Um, and then what was the what was the pre-Trump or what, what policy got changed that all of a sudden you have families being separated as opposed to being detained or released together? This was actually not a policy of the, uh, the administration, but rather a court decision and did switch when uh, Judge G, a federal district judge in Los Angeles, held that the Reno versus Flores settlement was applicable to the current situation, uh, you saw a, a, a revolution in terms of uh, impact on, on the asylum process and did, as the smugglers soon communicated back to the sending countries, that parents could now come with their children, claim asylum, and under the uh, ruling of the judge, while they had been placed into uh, detention centers in Texas and, and uh, New Mexico, uh, that in fact uh, they could not be held, children could not be held for more than 20 days under the Reno versus Flores settlement. So what you saw, and the Obama administration made the decision, I think the right decision, which was rather than keep the adults and separate the children from their parents, uh, there was a release of the entire family unit to wait for the hearing. That's not, uh, uh, that's an acceptable decision family by family by family, and one that uh, I think is, is uh, much to be preferred to the separation of children from their families, obviously. But it's a macro border security right. and management phenomenon. That word gets back, as you said, to the sending countries. It, it becomes a, a magnet of, uh, of great force and, frankly, is inconsistent with a border that is managed through the rule of law as opposed through the uh, operations of uh, criminal organizations that, uh, that continue to uh, – bring most of the uh, migrants north. So, Alan, now that we've got the easy questions out of the way, now now we'll go to the hard solutions, as you rightly acknowledge, this sort of bipartisan failure to come up with good solutions. So let, let me ask you, what would your solution be in, in the short term in to fix the, the problem, the mess that we're seeing now, or we have seen? And then going forward, you know, what, what does immigration reform look like that I, I guess, um, you know, not uh, – not a hypothetical best case, but one that would actually pass in the current political environment. So the, the first thing to recognize is that uh, there is no silver bullet. If there were a silver bullet or an easy solution, it would have been uh, seized upon or, and implemented already. So zero tolerance was a bluff from the start. And we now see that uh, the Commissioner of Customs and Border Protection is actually indicated that there will not be a turning over of, of families uh, or uh, individuals that are part of family units for prosecution because it's the zero-tolerance policy that led to the separation of children and their parents. And once you, uh, once you end that policy, as the president's executive order did last week, uh, you, you can't continue with a zero-prosecution policy. But that policy is actually... A senseless in, in any case because it's not doable. Even with the lowest number of people who have been crossing into the United States in the last generation, you cannot ask the prosecutors uh, on the southwest border to prosecute uh, 300,000 
uh, uh, individuals. Because that's this all they would do, right? They wouldn't have time to do nothing else. It takes away from other cases that are uh, much more important uh, uh, that have to be dealt with and are being dealt with but can't be dealt with if you're actually in, in the misdemeanor court uh, day by day. So it's not, a, it's not a viable alternative to do that. What we're now seeing is this idea that uh, there will be a, a, a building out on military bases of detention facilities where units will have to be, uh, family units will, uh, will be maintained. But that will require Judge G in Los Angeles and then, affirm, and then it would have to be affirmed by the Ninth Circuit to reverse the decision that she made s- several years ago. I think that's unlikely so that this idea of having family units on military bases that have to actually remove the children after 19 days uh, is, again, a a policy uh, uh, into a cul-de-sac that offers no no way out. So we continue to see this this, uh, interaction between uh, what is possible, what's desirable, uh, what's tolerable. So I think that uh, we should go back to something that the State Department actually tried during the Obama administration, uh, which was the processing of asylum claims in the home country, in the sending country, process asylum uh, cases as refugee cases, but provide a safe zone in those countries or in southern Mexico, if relations with Mexico permitted that, which right now they would not. But create the safe zone where people who are genuinely in danger can go, file their claim, and have them adjudicated uh, within a reasonable time. Now, some people, I think uh, there's a proposal now on the Hill that this be done within 20 days. I don't think that due process would permit the adjudication of these claims in, in, in 20 days. By the same token, I don't think it should take two years or three years or four years to get a hearing. So somewhere between uh, six months and a year, for the vast majority of cases, you should be able to adjudicate the status of, uh, of an asylum claim. If those uh, families that were claiming it were in a safe zone in which there was proper security and proper care uh, in their own countries, I think you'd see uh, two uh, benefits right away. One would be that you would, that would be a deterrent to using smugglers. So it would take the smuggler out of the uh, equation immediately. The second is that you would actually screen out uh, the, uh, the bogus claims. Uh, people would not want to come and be in a, uh, in basically a, a, a center away from their uh, for weeks families or months, yeah. uh, for weeks, months, or uh, for weeks or months, because you would want to get this done uh, 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 within a reasonable time uh, period. If we did that, we would actually avoid uh, what we see now. We'd avoid the smugglers. We'd avoid processing thousands of claims at the border, where the border is simply not a place where you can do that efficiently or effectively without having the kinds of consequences that we've seen in the the last uh, few weeks. So I would go back and and look to create safe zones. The problem in the past when the State Department did it, with all due respect, was that it took them two and a half or three years to get this done. In the same way that refugee processing in Syria or Iraq 
uh, is very time-consuming, and it takes an inordinately long period of time. So you'd have to provide the resources to actually make this happen in real time. In, in the years when we tried to do it uh, through the State Department program, we could not compete with the smugglers who were basically saying to their clients, uh, why would you wait for two years to have your claim adjudicated? We can get you to the U.S.-Mexico border in four to six weeks, and you'll be able to enter the country uh, within the uh, following month. But if we properly resource this, it seems to me that uh, we could create safe zones. We could do this in a way that would honor genuine need for refuge. We could we could act in accordance with our humanitarian traditions, while at the same time we could maintain the rule of law with regard to the proper functioning of our immigration system. Alan, final question. Do you see uh, – are we going to have to wait another couple of elections here for, for that to happen in terms of – uh, you know, getting the right political mix to to reach uh, any sort of immigration deal. I mean, I, I think, you know, sort of what we used to refer to as comprehensive immigration reform is probably off the table for a decade. But any sort of immigration deal that would envision things like what you just described. Um, One would hope so, because, in fact, the uh, policy uh, direction that we're currently following is a dead end. There is no... Uh, solution here. And it would it should be attractive to the Trump administration to actually as a way to get out of this, right? Avoid the problems at the border that are now uh, uh, have been exacerbated, create the proper safe zones. And I think you'd end up with a humane solution, a more effective solution and a much less expensive solution. With regard to comprehensive uh, immigration reform, Richard, I, I fear that uh, immigration reform on a comprehensive basis, comes around once every generation. It did during the Reagan administration and then a halfway uh, comprehensive uh, uh, reform uh, during the Clinton administration. And I think we missed that. I think when the uh, so-called Gang of Eight proposal led by Senator McCain in, uh, in, uh, in, during the Obama administration wasn't voted on by the House, I think we missed that opportunity. That doesn't mean, though, that we can't actually do incremental reform and fix parts of this system that reasonable people should not disagree right, upon. Right. Alan, thank you very much. It's been a fascinating uh, half hour, and I, I feel a lot smarter. I hope our listeners do, and uh, look forward to having you back on the show because I'm pretty sure we aren't going to solve this uh, in, anytime soon. Thank you so much. All right. Alan Burson has left the building. It was a great discussion about how we are trying to secure our southern border, um, keeping unauthorized entry or entrance out. But now we have Sarah Baumont back in Big Little News. Thank you, Sarah. Hi. We're going to talk about uh, a way in which we figured this out. We figured out how to keep apparently French joggers from crossing the northern border. Tell us what that's about. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, one of the most pressing immigration issues right now. Um, a big story come out in this past couple weeks about um, a jogger from on, on our northern border, um, a 19-year-old French woman named Cadella, who was visiting her mother in British Columbia, went for a long run and apparently accidentally crossed the border into the United States without realizing it. And because she didn't have any documentation on her while she went for her run, she ended up being uh, detained by CBP for two weeks before she could prove that she uh, could be returned back to Canada. Two weeks. Wow. I'm guessing she didn't have two weeks worth of like clothing and money and so on <laughs> when she went jogging. That was actually my first thought was just she was in her sweaty jogging clothes for two straight weeks. 
Um, Sarah, do we have any details on exactly where she crossed? Because I've been to Blaine, Washington. I, I remember, I think there's some sort of like peace arch there that kind of makes the border visible. This must have been a place where there were no markings or? Yeah, she claims that she didn't see any markings there at all. So she didn't even realize that she'd crossed the border. I've seen. A likely um, excuse. Right, exactly. French <laughs> folks are trying to get in all the time. Um, okay, well, uh, that is certainly um, gives me confidence that perhaps we don't know how to stop anyone um, across the southern border, but we certainly know how to halt the horde of French joggers coming across through Blaine, Washington. They've got their eyes peeled for them. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you.